hear the Word of God. From Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And boy, how are they evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now hear that warning this morning. We'll talk about this in a moment. But he is writing to believers. And he says, if you walk in the flesh, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited Provoking one another or envying one another. Let's ask God to help us understand His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you, by your grace, that you justify the sinner by faith in Jesus Christ. You reckon to the sinner's account the righteousness of Jesus Christ because you reckon to Jesus' account our transgressions. And so Father, we thank You this morning that we stand in the right before You as Your people because You have made us right with Yourself through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that when You justify us by faith, when You save us by the blood of Jesus, You also transform 
form us and You give us Your Spirit to live in Spirit-empowered obedience. So Father, we pray this morning that You would take this Word from Galatians and write it on our hearts and help every believer in this place to recognize that not only can we walk in the Spirit, but we must walk in the Spirit in order to inherit the Kingdom of God. So Father, we pray this morning that You would have Your way and that Your Spirit would visit with us and that You would help me to give Your people a word this morning, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians who love the concept of grace, we should know that God's greatest desire is to glorify Himself. We should know that God loves God. And God wants to manifest His glory throughout the entire creation so that the creation would give back to God the glory and the honor that He so rightly deserves. This is perhaps why the Bible begins with God, right? Not with man. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? You know it. I hope you do at least. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that exists, exists, we know from Genesis, because of God. And for God. And for His glory. This is why I also think that God saves sinners. He saves sinners because He wants those sinners whom He redeems to glorify Him, to honor Him, and to praise His great name. God saves the sinners for God. Oh yes. The individual sinner receives salvation and what a gift that is to receive. But the gift of salvation comes to us from God so that we would live our lives for the glory of God and we would praise God for saving us. I'll give you a few examples. You've been in Ephesians the last year, I think. And praise God for that. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul praises God for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those spiritual blessings pertain to salvation. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4-6, through 6, that God chooses us in Christ and predestines us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And here's the question, why does God do that? He does it, Paul says, for the praise of His glory. He wants glory. He wants fame. He wants a people who would not otherwise be His people. Apart from His grace, He wants that people to glorify Him when they receive salvation. Further, he says it again in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul proclaims that God gave believers an inheritance because He predestined us to be the first fruit of salvation. Why? For the praise of His glory. 
the praise of His honor. Once more, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that we believers received the down payment of the Spirit after we heard the Gospel and believed it. And we received the Gospel, we received the Spirit for the glory of God. For the praise of His glory. As I've said, God is for God. And everything God does, He does it for God's glory and for our good and for our joy. And He wants His glory to be enjoyed and tasted by all. And He wants His creatures and He wants those whom He redeemed to glorify Him above all. Still with me this morning? This is still my introduction. We'll get to Galatians in a moment. It's still my introduction, however. Unfortunately, we Christians who deeply love God's saving grace do not always understand obedience. Or, let's use a theological word, we don't always understand sanctification. What it means to be holy. We might be tempted to think that because we're justified by faith and we are saved by God's grace, we are therefore free to live any way we want. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, that this is not right. And this is not the gospel. So I have two things I want us to think about this morning from Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. The first is a command, and the second is a warning. Here's the command. Walk in the Spirit. In other words, obey the Gospel. And here's the warning. If Christians do not obey the Gospel, if those who identify with Jesus do not obey the Gospel, they will not inherit the Kingdom of God. Galatians 5 Now, feel the weight of that this morning. Walk in the Spirit. Because walking in the Spirit is a means by which we will inherit the kingdom of God. So, see the first truth. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Notice what Paul says in verse 16. He says, But I say to you, walk in the Spirit. Let's think about that for a moment. Why would he give this command? It's a very simple answer to that question. He wrote the letter to these Christians who were thinking about walking away from His Gospel and embracing the law of Moses. There were Jewish teachers in Galatia who entered into the Galatian churches and told these Gentile Christians that their faith in Jesus Christ was not sufficient for them to be part of the people of God but rather they had to be circumcised. That is, receive the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. As Genesis 17 says. And they had to meet the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant by keeping special days and and special festivals and so on and so forth. 
In other words, these Jewish teachers told these Gentile Christians they had to become Jewish to be part of the people of God. So Paul wrote the letter to say, no, do not turn away from my Gospel that emphasizes faith in Jesus Christ alone for Jews and Gentiles. And much of what Paul argues in Galatians is an argument against the need for these Gentile Christians to keep the law of Moses to be part of the people of God. So they might be thinking, when you get to the end of the letter, we're justified by faith in Christ, therefore we can live any way we want to live. And Paul says, oh no. You're justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. That is true. But you must obey the Gospel. Let's put it the way Paul puts it in verse 16. You must walk in the Spirit. Did you notice? This is not a suggestion. It's a command. And commands, by definition, are urgent. And emphatic. He is urging these Galatians to walk in the Spirit, to obey the Gospel. And then he says, if you do that, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In verse 16, for those of you who are familiar with this letter, you know that Paul is recalling the theme of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a prominent place in the book of Galatians. As he's already argued in the letter, the Spirit is the mark of membership within the people of God. The people of God, now that Christ has come, they're marked off not by the law of Moses anymore. They're marked off by faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of the Spirit, Paul argues. The Spirit is the one who gave the Galatians spiritual experiences. Chapter 3. Verses 2 through 5. And the Spirit is the one who makes them part of God's family and frees them through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, Paul says in verse 16 that these Galatians must walk in the Spirit. But what does that mean, Paul? That means Christians who have been justified by faith in Christ have been liberated from the present evil age. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. And we're liberated from the power of sin. We are liberated from slavery and bondage to the law. And as a result, we are free in Christ to obey Him. You understand that this morning? Before you became a Christian, you were a slave to your depravity. You were dead in transgressions and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. You had no hope in this world. You had no resurrection life. You were dead. But when God in Christ breathed in you through the preaching of the Gospel and awakened your heart and He gave you life and He gave you faith to believe, He also gave you the Spirit and by means of the Spirit, you are able to freely live in obedience to the Gospel. Let's state it another way. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. That is, do not gratify the lust of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, that is, if you obey the Gospel, you shall by no means gratify the lust of the flesh, but you should also 
be intentional about not seeking to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, verse 17, Paul provides specific reasons in verses 17 through 26 why, in fact, the Galatians should walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice verse 17. Now that word for there, I'm, tra- I'm reading from the NS- ESV translation. And verse 17 in the ESV begins with the word for. Which shows me that Paul is giving you a reason for the command back in verse 16. So walk in the Spirit. Obey the Gospel. Here's the reason. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't obey the flesh. Here's the reason. Verse 17. Because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 17, when he says that the flesh is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit contrary to the flesh, here's what I think he means. In Galatians, Flesh could refer to the physical flesh. The body. But it doesn't refer to the body here. It refers to a power. It refers to the present evil age. Which Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. It re- refers to the age dominated by sin. Dominated by a curse and dominated by bondage to the law. It refers to the age in which unrighteousness reigns. I hope you're asking, Jarvis, how do you know that? Because he contrasts the flesh with the Spirit. You notice that in verse 17? You notice it? My questions aren't rhetorical, by the way. Did you notice that in verse verse 17? The flesh represents the old age. The Spirit represents the new age inaugurated by Jesus who died to deliver us from the present evil age and who resurrected to give us life. So the flesh represents the old age and the Spirit represents the new age in Jesus and everything that He's brought about including justification by faith and new creation. Therefore, believers walk in the Spirit. And don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? Because flesh and spirit have nothing in common with each other. I don't know how much you follow college basketball, but the Cardinals, U of L, and the Kentucky Wildcats, the best team ever, have nothing in common. Now you decide who's flesh and who's spirit in that analogy. The old age represents the power of sin. The new age in Christ is represented by the Spirit. So don't walk in the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Now, Paul further, in this verse, tells us that we ought not to walk in the flesh because the flesh and the Spirit, verse 17, are opposed to each other. And he tells us As a result of that, verse 17, we ought not to do the things that we want to do. So walk in the Spirit because flesh and Spirit are opposed to each other so that, verse 17, you would not do the things of the flesh when you want to do them. You need to recognize 
this about the Christian life. Jesus Christ did come to change our desires. Absolutely and amen, right? He didn't come to meet your desires. He came to transform them. And to conform them to Himself. But understand something about the Christian life. There are times in the Christian life when the flesh will arise in your heart and you'll have desires that do not please God. You know that? I shared with the brothers last night that about three weeks ago in Sunday school, a dear senior saint said to me as I was teaching my Sunday school class, when you become a Christian, Jarvis, you no longer have the desire to sin. To which I responded by saying, really? What gospel pill do you take every day? There are times in my life, this morning, when my heart desires things that are not in accordance with the Spirit. So then how do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? I don't give in to those desires. Even when I want to. That's what Paul says in verse 17, right? Men, there will be moments in your life when you desire to look at another man's wife. Even though you know Jesus says you ought not to do that. And Paul urges you in verse 16 that you ought not to gratify the desire of your flesh because flesh and spirit are at war with each other. So when the desire emerges in your heart to commit adultery or to look at pornography or to lust, here's what you do. You say, Jesus, help me not to do that. And then you don't do that. You follow me? You don't click that pornographic button when you're tempted to. You fight against your flesh. You don't flirt with someone else's wife when you're tempted to, when you desire to. Why? Flesh and spirit are opposed to each other. You're in a war, folks. And the war is against the devil and the flesh. So walk in the Spirit, verse 16. Verse 17, because flesh and spirit are opposed to each other. And if you walk in the Spirit, you are empowered not to do the things of the flesh when you desire to do them. Now I have several applications that I'll give you in a moment, but let me say this one now. Christians are in a war against the devil and the flesh. Ephesians chapter 6 is coming, right? Paul says, you're battling not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of evil. Your fight is against the devil. But here's the good news of the Gospel. Every Christian in Christ has already conquered the devil. You know that? Because your Jesus is not dead in the tomb. And therefore, every Christian in Christ can fight against the devil and conquer the lust of the flesh every single day. Oh yes, we sin, we make mistakes, and we fall short of the glory of God. But hear this, brothers. I'm speaking to men specifically here, although it applies to women. If you struggle with lust, your Jesus can liberate you from that struggle. Why? Because He conquered the power of sin and death. 
And God raised him up from the dead. So you do not have to give in to the desires of the flesh when they emerge in your heart. You understand what I'm saying? You can defeat them and the power of the Gospel. Christians do not live a defeatist Christian life. You don't have to be an adulterer or a fornicator or a liar or a gossiper or a cheat or a racist or a crook. You don't have to be those things because you have the Spirit which God gave to you in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18, Paul now begins to talk about walking in the Spirit in verse 18. In my view, to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit really refer to the same thing. Look at verse 18. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, let's think about this for a moment. As you know, there are different views regarding the role of the Spirit in terms of leading us to do things. And whenever we read a statement or a verse like this, we must always Read the verse in its own context, right? In its own setting. The Apostle Paul does not attempt here to tell us everything there is to know about being led by the Spirit. But he does tell us something about being led by the Spirit. And in this verse, to be led by the Spirit means, very simply, you obey the Gospel, right? Because in verse 16 he says, walk in the Spirit. And do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So then he says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. To be led by the Spirit is to walk in the Spirit. That is, it's to obey the Gospel. Being led by the Spirit here does not refer to a super spiritual experience. It neither refers to a feeling. You know, there are times when I feel like sinning. Right? Right? Maybe I'm just not the most spiritual person in this room. Maybe I'm the only one who has these battles. There are occasions when I feel like sinning. And my feelings often are contradictory to the Gospel. So then, what must I do? Not rely upon my feelings to determine whether or not I'm led by the Spirit, but I rely upon the Spirit. And one way you know you're relying upon the Spirit is not based on the gospel goosebumps that come up on your arms sometimes when you're singing, but it's based on your spirit and power obedience. So if you are obeying Jesus today, you are led by the Spirit. I'll give you an example. The Spirit does not lead you to lie or to steal. The Spirit does not lead you to commit adultery no matter how much you try to tell yourself that other woman or that other man loves Jesus more than your spouse. Therefore, it's okay. The Spirit's not leading you to do that. The Spirit is leading you to love your wife, to love your husband, to have a pure heart, to have pure eyes. Whenever you are feeling like sinning against God, your feelings are from the devil. They're from the flesh. But whenever you are walking in step with the Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So brothers and sisters, embrace the power of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you're being led by the Spirit. And you know you're led by the Spirit if in fact you're living in obedience 
to the gospel. Now, I have some applications for you here in a moment, but notice what Paul says further in verses 19 to 21. We're entering into a point of the text where, frankly, you might feel like covering up your kids' ears here. Because Paul mentions some pretty graphic stuff, right? Before we read these verses, let me remind you that Paul is writing this letter to Gentiles who were converted from paganism. And in Gentile religion, in the ancient world, they had often, from a Jewish perspective, these Gentiles had immorality built within their religion. So that, for example, in the ancient world, there were places in Gentile communities where the men would go to banquets and they would become intoxicated. And then later on in the banquet, they would receive female entertainers at these banquets and engage in sexual promiscuity. And it's possible that these Gentile men who were converted to Jesus came out of that environment. Therefore, Paul must urge them, therefore, to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the lust of the flesh, which would have been exactly what they did before they got saved. So strap yourself in and get ready. Here it comes. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. I'm going to comment briefly on each one. This refers, I think, to any form of sexual sin. I'm not going to be specific here. This is a mature congregation. You can figure this one out, right? But it pertains to any form of sexual sin. Fornication as well as adultery. And other forms of sexual expression. If you're given over to sexual immorality, you are not walking in the Spirit. But rather you are gratifying the lust of the flesh. And if you're gratifying the lust of the flesh, that represents you are a slave to the present evil age. Further, Impurity, verse 19. That covers pretty much everything. Impurity. We can contextualize it and say, even pornography. Now you're going to start a series here soon on planning for your obedience or, or in being intentional about your obedience. If you're not careful, pornography could sneak up on you and destroy your marriage and destroy your life. I don't want to be too explicit here because this is being recorded. But I have people with whom I went to seminary and they are no longer in the ministry because they clicked that pornographic button and they, and they pursued that illicit email. And their ministries and their marriages are absolutely over. Oh, there's grace in the Gospel. And Jesus forgives all who repent. But that doesn't mean your marriage will be saved if you fall into pornography, right? Because your sin of pornography or sexual sin or other kinds of impurity would affect more people than yourself. And it can destroy your family. And men, once you lose the respect of your kids and your wife because you've given yourself over to the lust of the flesh by means of pornography, it is hard to get that back. And let me say something to you young people. 
If your minds are not pure now, you'll pay for that the rest of your life. I got saved when I was 17. And I saw a lot of pagan images before I got saved. And I'm 38 years old today. And I can be praying and reading my Bible. And all of a sudden, an image from 1996 comes into my mind that I haven't seen in decades. So what's your point, Jarvis? My point is, impurity will stain your mind for the rest of your life if you give yourself into sexual sin. If you give yourself over to impure images, don't do it. The devil promises you so much joy and pleasure. But he wants to kill you. For those of you who work hard and stay up late at night flipping through the channels, surfing the internet to relieve stress, guard your heart from impurity. There are all sorts of other impurities. Let me pick on the young ladies for a moment. I'm giving the, the men a hard time. Young ladies, keep yourself pure until you get married. Don't you for one moment believe any man who tells you he loves you and you should show your love for him by committing fornication. Don't do it. If he wants you to commit sexual sin and to sin against your Jesus, do not waste your time with that particular man. He doesn't love you. He loves what temporary pleasures you can give to him. Guard your heart. College students, I know you guys normally sit right here, so I'm aiming right at you this morning. Guard your hearts and your mind, young ladies. Save yourself for your husband. And if you've sinned already in that regard, here's what you ought to do. Don't sin more in that regard. Repent! Right? And commit yourself today to Jesus to stay pure until you get that ring. Until you marry your future husband. Same is true for you young men. Thank God I'm not a teenager anymore. Thank God I'm not a young 20-something anymore. There are all kinds of emotions raging through your body. And I can't imagine what it would be like today to be a teenager or a young 20-single person. All the technology. At the seminary, we're constantly reminded by our administration that the vast majority of young people that come to us to study theology have already been exposed to a massive amount of pornography and impurity because of the technology that makes it so easy to access. So young men, guard your minds and your heart. Do you want to be a real man? Live your life sexually pure for Jesus Christ and save yourself for your future bride. And if you too have already sinned in that regard, repent and don't sin in that regard anymore. Follow Jesus faithfully. And who cares about what your rinky-dink friends say to you about that? You want the approval of Jesus. I wish we could stop there, but Paul goes further. He says sensuality. Another way in verse 19 to think of sensuality is morally reckless living. Verse 20, idolatry. Now these Gentiles would have worshipped idols. They would have literally offered sacrifices to pagan deities. In our context today, we don't go to the bank and stand outside and offer an altar in the name of money, but we do worship money. We do commit idolatry, frankly. We worship our gifts. We worship any good thing that God gives to us can easily and quickly become an idol. 
And when you find yourself worshiping a gift from God, you're worshiping not the God of the gift, but the gift itself. And you ought to repent. Because those who walk in the Spirit do not worship idols. We don't worship false gods. The God of sex. The God of money. The God of Republican politics or Democratic politics. Yes, we vote and we be responsible. But we don't worship our country or our government. We worship King Jesus. We don't worship our race or our social contacts or our economic class. We worship Jesus. Another example of the lust of the flesh is sorcery. Magic was very popular in the ancient world. There are examples even in Acts where this one person was a magician. Simon was his name. And he wanted to buy the gift of healing people from the apostles so that he could profit from that financially because he was a sorcerer. And my guess is most of you aren't practicing magic, but stay away from Ouija boards and voodoo. You don't need to be trying to talk to dead people. There are enough dead people walking around right now who are lost to talk to. Don't be trying to raise dead spirits from the dead. That's demonic. Stay away from that nonsense. And I would also suggest to you, do not put images in your mind and musical lyrics in your mind that celebrate the demonic. Don't do that. Because that's of the devil. Further, he says, enmity and strife. These two should be taken together. Jealousy should be taken with that as well. Enmity and strife. Hostility. Remember, he's writing to Christians. You know, some of you have been Christians long enough perhaps to see church splits. And churches split sometimes over things that are worthwhile, right? Whenever there's a theological problem, if, if the theology of the church is not pure, then some people will leave that church and go start another church. But sometimes churches split over the dumbest things. The color of the carpet, the flavor of the Kool-Aid, at VBS. Remember, I'm Southern Baptist, so some of my stories come out of my Southern Baptist background. But some of this is just insanity. The church of Jesus Christ should be marked by the Spirit, and the Spirit enables the church of Jesus Christ not to be factious and divisive. Oh yeah, we disagree in love, don't we? Some of you don't think the University of Kentucky Wildcats is the greatest basketball team ever, and that's okay. We can still love each other in Jesus. So the point is not that we always agree as the people of God, but the point is that faction faction and division and enmity within the body of Christ and strife and jealousy are not fruits of the Spirit. But the works of the flesh. He also says fits of anger. Now this is going to surprise some of you, but I have an anger issue. And I know it. No, I do not. Drop F-bombs on people when I get mad. I don't punch holes through walls when I get mad. I don't do any of that. But sometimes I get angry. Let me give you a personal anecdote here. Last Friday, my son took my PhD hat that I spent like $200 for to school because he gave a presentation on Christopher Columbus and he wanted to wear a hat like Columbus. And when the hat came back to me, he had lost the 
tassel that goes to the hat. And I forgot everything that this passage says about walking in the Spirit. From the moment he got in the car to the moment we parked and walked back in the school, I was preaching a sermon to him about responsibility and how he disappointed me and how he hurt my hat and I was whining over my hat but forgetting about loving him in the spirit. So my wife had to rebuke me. (laughs) And I had to repent. And I had to ask him to forgive me. But I was ready to fire off about 50 emails to teachers, and I was mad, to, ready to go talk to one of the students' parents who took the hat from my son and was wearing it, even though he shouldn't have done that. And I had all these passions raging inside of me, fits of anger. And they show themselves sometimes when you least expect them to, right? That's what anger does. Anger is not fundamentally an emotion, it is an action, and it comes out sometimes in most surprising ways. So I've learned about myself. This is one way I have to fight against this sin. I've learned about myself. When I get angry, it's best for me to shut up for a while and to go hide myself from people and pray. Because if I speak, poison is going to come out. Fits of anger are not works of the Spirit. And by the way, we see all kinds of fits of anger happening on social media all the time between Christians, right? Just look online at how Christians have responded to each other during all this racial strife that's happened. Look at how Christians are talking to each other. Fits of anger. Embarrassing Jesus as they're blasting fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Furthermore, there's rivalries and dissensions Envy, this is another hard one for me. It'd be great if everybody in the Christian community could praise God for the gifted people in our congregations when those people are more gifted than we are. You know what I'm talking about? So what we'll do is we'll praise God on the outside, but on the inside we're raging with envy because we don't have that gift. Or we'll complain about the person who cooks the cake because she has the gift of hospitality. We'll complain about how the cake wasn't as good as it could have been if another person made the cake who has the better gift, right? We, we are envious of the gifts that God gives to people. It's not a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the flesh. Drunkenness! Look at that one! Whenever you, in the ancient world and in the modern world, have drunkenness and the opposite sex in the same room, you are creating a potion for sexual immorality to take place. Right? It is not God's will for you to be a drunkard. Young people, back to you again. You're at a university, a lot of parties, a lot of alcohol. Hear this carefully. It is not God's will for you to be a drunkard. And if you're underage, it's not God's will for you to drink. Amen, Jarvis! Say it to myself. Because you're breaking the law. Drunkenness. And then orgies. Oh my goodness. This is the real world. 
And by the way, these people to whom Paul is writing this letter, they got saved and they left all of that stuff. And this should remind us that this Jesus business changes your life. It brings you from death to life so that if you are given over to prostitution or sexual immorality, you can be freed from that and you can be saved and you can walk in the Spirit and God doesn't count your sins against you. There's no place in the Christian life for this kind of sexual behavior. So that's my first point. But let me give you a couple of applications. Three applications. Three applications. I'm almost done. I love preaching here. That's why I always preach long sermons when I come. Three quick applications. Number one, if you've tasted God's saving grace, you must demonstrate that by walking in Spirit-empowered obedience. And here's why. Here's why you should hear the command. Because your sovereign God in heaven has worked in your heart. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The one who has worked in your heart enables you to obey. So you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God has worked in you. You can do it. If you are in Christ, you can walk in the Spirit and not gratify the lust of the flesh. You can do it. You don't have to be a drunkard or a pick a sinful identity. You can follow Jesus. Second, and related to the first, Christians, God has liberated us from the power of sin and death. God has liberated us from the power of sin and death. But we must fight against our sin. You understand that? We are in a war against the devil and the flesh. So what you as a believer must do every waking moment is fight against the flesh and the devil with the Gospel. You must fight. You must be aggressive. You must go hard after obedience and hard to fight against disobedience. You do not need to have a let go and let God view of the Christian life. And you do not need to have the view that says, well, everything's just going to work out, so I have no responsibility to be active in my obedience. No, you need to pray. You need to read your Bible. And you need to be involved in the local church and do everything you can with the spiritual resources you have to fight against the devil. Here's one way you fight against the devil. Still with me? There's one way you fight against your sin. There's one way you resist the lust of the flesh. In the moment, in the moment of temptation, you call out to God. You say, God, don't let me sin against you, but help me to walk in the Spirit. You resist the devil. You draw near to God. You resist the devil. And the devil will flee from you. That's what James promises. You do what Jesus did in the temptation experience. When the devil tempted him with external temptations, he resisted. And as he resisted, what's he doing? He's hitting the devil with the Word of God. You have no weapon with which to fight against the devil if you don't read the Bible and if you don't pray. You have no hope 
of fighting against your sin in the moment of temptation when you are weak and you want to disobey God, if you don't have the Word of God oozing through your spiritual veins, you have no hope. And if you don't cry out to God in the moment of temptation, you don't have any hope to win the battle. So you fight. Where's my second point? And then we'll bring it to a close. First point, walk in the Spirit. Obey the Gospel. Second point, it's a warning. If we don't walk in the Spirit, we will not inherit the Kingdom of God. Let me state it this way. If we do not obey the Gospel and live in Spirit-empowered obedience, we have no promise of eternal life. Now, I'm going to read the verse for you in a moment that supports that. But let me clarify something because some of you might be a little nervous at this point in the sermon. Say, actually, I got nervous the first 15 minutes, but maybe you're even more nervous now. I believe everybody whom Jesus saves will be saved at the end of history. I believe in eternal security. That everyone who was genuinely saved and justified by faith, everyone who was converted, will not lose his or her salvation. Jesus has never lost anybody whom He has saved. He keeps everybody for whom He died. He keeps them until the end. But here's what I am saying. Everyone whom Jesus redeemed will prove their obedience, or rather will prove their faith in Jesus by means of their obedience. In other words, if you have no evidence that you are following Jesus, there is no reason to believe that you are following Jesus. But everyone who follows Jesus shows they follow Jesus by Spirit-empowered obedience. So here we go, verse 21. After, after, after verse 21, Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit and having love and joy, verse 22 and verse 23, peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the opposite attributes of the lust of the flesh. But before he mentions the fruit of the Spirit in verse, verses 22 and 23, he first mentions a warning. Verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things, the such things refer to the lust of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now hear that. Back in the 1980s, there was this view that circulated in certain Christian communities that suggested this. As long as you pray the sinner's prayer and you ask Jesus to come into your heart, it doesn't really matter how you live because you'll just lose rewards in heaven, but you'll still get heaven. So some argued, and many people are still arguing that today, that having Jesus as your Savior is sufficient even if you reject Him as your Lord. And I want to say to that person, and those people who say that, that is not what any New Testament author would ever say about salvation. Jesus doesn't want meaningless words. He wants your life. He wants all of you. It doesn't matter how many times you've asked Jesus to come into your heart. 
If you're not following Him faithfully, Paul says, verse 21, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God for Paul is another way of talking about new creation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. It's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. When Jesus entered into history, He inaugurated the kingdom of God. And we see this in the Gospels when Jesus casts out demons and raises the dead and forgives people of their sins. He shows you that God's kingdom has come. But the kingdom of God is not yet fully realized. And we know this because we have sin continuing to triumph and conquer this present evil age. So the kingdom of God is already here. And we know this because we have the Spirit but it's not yet fully realized. So here's what Paul is doing. He is pushing the Galatians to that final day when Jesus returns from heaven to earth. Revelation 19, 20 and 21 and 22. When He comes from heaven to earth and He brings about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. He brings it to earth where He will reign forever and ever and ever. And He says, anyone who is not walking in the Spirit will not inherit that earth or that kingdom. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. And those who walk in step with the Spirit are Christians. How do you know you're saved this morning? At least two ways. Number one, you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the hope of eternal life and for the forgiveness of sins. You're resting everything about your eternity on King Jesus. And number two, you are living your life in obedience to Him. And one thing you do, by the way, when you follow Jesus is you repent when you sin. You confess your sin, right? If you say you don't have sin, you don't know Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. There are sins that I know I'm going to die struggling with. My anger's gotten better over the last... 21 years I've been a Christian. But I still fight against it every day of my life. But evidence of walking in the Spirit is not do I ever go through a day without having anger? Evidence of walking in the Spirit is am I pursuing peace where there is the desire for wrath? You follow what I'm saying? So you know that you know Jesus if you're walking in the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you know that you're doing that because God has given you salvation by faith in Jesus. So if you're trusting in Jesus and if you're obeying Him, you are free in Christ to obey Jesus. To love Him. Well, I've talked too long. Let me give you some quick applications and then we're done. A few quick applications. Let me give you actually one. One application with about four or five pieces to it. God works in us first. Pastor Eric has been preaching through Ephesians, and you know from in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God works in the hearts of sinners. He makes dead sinners alive in Jesus. And the God who makes us alive in Jesus, the God who gives us eternal life, is the God who spiritually energizes us enables us 
to pursue Him in faithful obedience. So your obedience is your obedience given to you by God. So, so don't hear me saying this morning, you need to pull yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps and follow Jesus. No, no. I'm saying you must rely upon the God who saved you to help you follow Jesus faithfully. But on the other hand, you must make the decision every waking moment of your life to live in obedience to Jesus or else you won't. We say it this way. If you do not choose to walk in the Spirit, you will not walk in the Spirit. So let me give you some practical ways by which to help you walk in the Spirit. God saves us and enables us to obey Him. And because of what God has done for us in Christ, we are able to obey Him. But God does not leave us by ourselves to pursue this. He gives us means of grace. Like your key to your car is a means by which the car will turn on. Studying is a means by which you will get a good grade, right? God gives His people means by which to achieve the obedience that He accomplishes for them in Jesus. Does that make sense? If it doesn't say it doesn't make sense. You have permission to talk. Does it make sense? Let me give you some means. One means is the church of Jesus Christ. You need this church in order to walk in the Spirit. You cannot live in faithful obedience to Jesus by yourself missing church every Sunday. Now, I understand sometimes people work on Sundays. I get that. But here's my point. My point is, if you are in regular absence of gathering with the people of God, it is unlikely that you're going to have the power to walk in the Spirit. You need the church. You need brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to hear those songs sung when you're thinking about walking away. You need to hear the people of God sing those promises of the Gospel and those songs to hit up against your soul and to draw you in to deep intimacy with Jesus. You need the church for that. And let me tell you something, church is not listening to a sermon on the internet either. It's gathering with the people of God sitting under the teaching of elders, being served by deacons, and a place at which you serve the Lord's Supper and practice baptism. You need the church. Church is a means by which you obey in the Spirit. Secondly, prayer. I've already mentioned this, but do you pray? Again, I'm not talking about these God bless America prayers or thank you for the food Jesus prayers. I'm talking about do you go out in outright war praying before God with your Bible open fighting against the devil with your Bible open regularly and calling out to God praying these promises back to God asking God to hear what He's already promised He would do and asking God to do it if you don't pray like that you need to pray like that you need to have your Bible you need to have your prayer journal you need to be specific. You need to be intentional. 
about what you're praying for. You need to pick a time when to pray and be consistent. And if you miss a day, don't fret. Do it the next day, right? And also, you need to have a spontaneous prayer life as well. Those moments when temptation sees you, seizes you, you need to burst out in prayer. God help me. Do you do that? It's amazing to me how few Christians pray like this. Third, preaching. This is my last one. There are other means of grace, but this is the last one I'll I'll mention. Preaching is a means of grace by which you can walk in the Spirit. I don't understand people who get up and leave during the sermon unless there's some kind of emergency that makes them do that. I want to be careful because this is being recorded, but let me just say it this way. I've been in churches before in Louisville where the Sunday school teacher would teach Sunday school and then leave and not go to the worship service. And it's the same ones doing it every Sunday. And I know that these folks don't have other obligations at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. They don't want to hear preaching. If you don't want to hear preaching, that's another way of saying, I don't want help to walk in the Spirit. Preaching is a means by which the Word of God comes down from God through the preacher and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and writes it on your heart and moves you to obey Jesus. There is a preaching moment that's happening right now. There are things happening in your soul that you don't even know what's going on right now. But God is doing something through this incompetent preacher. And preaching is the means by which God has chosen to save some. And it's the means by which God has chosen to sanctify His people. It's a preaching moment. And you need to sit under that preaching. You need to hear your pastor when he preaches and have the Word of God open. And you need to pray for him to preach well and pray for yourselves to listen well. Because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and uses it to transform your heart. And... You need to preach to yourselves. You say, God hasn't called me to preach. If you're a believer, yes, He has. He hasn't called you to be a pastor, necessarily. But if you are a Christian, you are a proclaimer of the good news. And the sermons that you preach the most should be to your own soul every single day. So, for example, if you are struggling with fits of anger, you pray this. This is how I pray, oh God. Help me to have love, to have joy, to have peace. Don't let me be angry. And I even do this. Just say there's someone who makes me really angry. I call out to God and I call that person by name. And I say, God, this person is getting on my nerves. Please help me to show love to this person. And then I look for ways to show love. So brothers and sisters, here's the word of the Lord, I think. Walk in the Spirit. And do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't do it. And if you walk in the Spirit, you will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you are a believer, you will walk in the Spirit. And you will inherit the kingdom of God. Amen.